evening from Knox's version, um, which of course is a translation of the Latin Vulgate, which in turn is a translation of the Septuagint version, and therefore in some ways sometimes differs from the Hebrew text because it has been received through the Greek and Old Latin texts. But in some instances, of course, the Septuagint, the, Greek, the old Greek version of the Old Testament, differs quite considerably. Indeed, in some parts on this vision, it differs so considerably that it almost seems to be uh, a different vision. Uh, but here, there are some very interesting notes which were added by um, Jerome and, and others, or uh, earlier than Jerome, some who added little notes which were meant to explain one or two things and which embody in some cases uh, probably true traditions concerning it. So it is very, very interesting. And Knox has um, actually uh, compared it with the Hebrew and other things and has been, I think, quite fair. I'm going to read it from verse 4. I'm going to read it in Knox's version. <coughs> I think it will be rather interesting to you. I looked around me to find that a storm wind had sprung up from the north, driving a great cloud before it. And this cloud had fire caught up in it that fringed it with radiance. And there in the heart of it, in the very heart of the fire, was a glow like amber that enclosed four living figures. These were human in appearance, but each had four faces and two pairs of wings. Either leg was straight-formed, yet ended in a calf's hoof. They sparkled like red-hot bronze. On each of the four sides, human arms showed beneath the wings. Faces and wings looked out outwards four ways. Wings of each were held touching wings of other. And when they moved, they did not turn round, but each kept an onward course. As for the appearance of their faces, each had the face of a man. Yet each of the four looked like a lion when seen from the right, like an ox when seen from the left, like an eagle when seen from above or within. So much for their faces. Each had two wings spread out above him, those two which met his neighbor's wings. With the other two, he veiled his body. Each of them marched straight forward, following the movement of a divine impulse, never swerving as he marched. There was that, too, in the appearance of the living figures which put me in mind of flaming coals or of torches. That was what I saw going to and fro in the midst of the living figures, a glow as a fire. And from this glow, lightning came out. So the living creatures came and went, vivid as lightning flashes. And as I watched the living figures, all at once wheels appeared close to them, one at each of the four sides, of strange colour and form. All four were alike, the colour of aquamarine, and each looked like a wheel within a wheel. Moved day, it was ever one of the four ways the living figures looked. And they did not turn round in moving. As for their size, their height was terrible to look upon. 
and the whole frame of them all round was full of eyes. Onward the wheels moved when the living figures moved onward at their side, rose above the earth when the living figures rose above it. They too had a living impulse in them. They too, whenever that impulse stirred them up, must rise up and follow the way it went. With the living figures whose vital impulse they shared, the wheels too moved and halted and rose. Over the living figures a vault seemed to rise, like a sheet of dazzling crystal resting on their heads. Under this vault each held two wings erect to meet his neighbours. Each had two turned upwards to overshadow him, and two turned downwards to veil his body. When they moved, the sound of their wings reached me loud as waters in flood or thunders from on high, incessant as the hum of a great throng or an armed camp. Only when they came to rest did they lower their wings. A voice would come from the firmament over their heads. Then they would halt. Then they would lower their wings. Above this vault that rested on them, Sapphire blue towered up into the form of a throne, nor did that throne seem to be empty. A shape was there above it, as of one enthroned, and all about him it was filled with amber-coloured flame, upwards from his loins, downwards from his loins, an arch of light seemed to shine, like rainbow among the clouds on a day of storm. There was brightness all about him. So much I saw of what the Lord's glory is like, and seeing it, I fell down face to earth. Well, now, this evening, we want to take up what we, where we left off last week, we want to take up again the matter of the key to this book of Ezekiel. You will remember that last week we pointed out that Ezekiel, uh, the key really to Ezekiel, or the first thing we've got to understand in coming to the key of Ezekiel, is that his is a ministry of definition. It is abundantly clear, and there is much evidence for it, that Ezekiel it is not the man that the Holy Spirit is leaving with us. It is not so much uh, uh, his uh, life and character that is being impressed upon us. It is his message. And with Ezekiel, the all-important thing is ministry. Uh, it is clear in the way that the book is set out. It is clear in the analytical, systematic way in which everything is approached, the way it's all, as it were, defined for us. Here there is a ministry to God's people in compromised and exiled conditions, which we can only describe as a ministry of definition. It is, as we underlined, a ministry of definition and not of building. He is not involved in the practicalities of the actual a building, rebuilding, the actual restoration, the actual return to the land. All his ministry is taken up with the principles that, as it were, underlie all God's work, underlie all God's purpose. 
And that is really one of the, the lasting values of uh, Ezekiel. Um, you see, he has touched principles in God's work, in God's purpose, uh, that, and God's service, that are applicable to every generation and to every age. That is the, the amazing nature of Ezekiel's type of ministry. Um, he cannot be bound, really, in many ways, to any one locality or one generation even, although his is a ministry uh, preparatory to recovery. Yet, really, essentially, he had a ministry of definition. And he goes back into the history of God's people, and he begins to sort all kinds of things out, why they went astray, what caused the blockage, why there was the judgment, why it was necessary for God to put them into such a trial and into such suffering. He was tracing it back all the time to the sources and the contravention of principles. Ezekiel was all the time ready, as we shall see as we go through the book in the next week or weeks, that he was all the time pointing out principle, a principle which, if contravened, would have certain results. It was as sure as that. If you, if you didn't obey uh, this principle, if it wasn't operative, then certain things uh, would result, as sure as that. Well, that's really um, where we started last week, if I remember rightly, and we went on to the whole question of the cherubim. We pointed out that there was a lot in his ministry. We, we, we underlined certain emphases in his ministry, and we left it uh, uh, with the cherubim. You remember we spent a lot of time last week going right through Scripture, looking up uh, this whole question and matter uh, of the cherubim, and seeking to get to the root of it. Now that's where I want to take it up, uh, really, this evening. Um, I want to point out to you that, if I remember rightly, we concluded on this note uh, last week, that it was quite clear that the cherubim are a composite symbol to representing the kind of humanity God originally intended. Uh, there are a tremendous number of theories uh, as regards the cherubim, and I don't think there's probably anything else that has quite um, been the source of so much mystery and so many uh, speculative uh, theories uh, and suggestions as the, the, the cherubim. But when, as we did last week, we take it all into account and seek to go back to the beginning of the Bible and trace right through all the way through this whole question of the cherubim, there are certain things that in the end we have got to admit. And there are certain theories which will not accommodate all that we have in Scripture. So I believe, if I am right, that we came to the conclusion, at least as we uh, studied the word, that the cherubim were, are not actual beings, they are not 
angelic. Uh, they do not actually exist. They are a representation or, if you like, um, uh, a picture, uh, a symbol of something else. Very much in the way that the tree of life, for instance, is a symbol of something. The cherubim are a symbol. And throughout scripture they stand as a symbol. And we have learnt from the way that we're, they're always revealed to us, that they are associated always with God's uh, purpose, with God's presence, always, never apart from God's presence, uh, with God's dwelling place, with God's throne, and with God's glory, from beginning to end. So we have come to the conclusion, at least I have, that they are a redeemed humanity and they represent what God originally wanted out of humanity what he originally purposed for humanity and indeed the constitution that he wanted humanity to have at its inception at its creation the story is a very different one and that is why because of another kind of humanity that has existed the cherubim are always guarding the way to God from man. They will not allow man to come to God. They always stand in the way, and they're always, as it were, closing and barring the door to God. Because they represent a kind of, of man who alone can, if I may use the expression, be part of God. This kind of humanity that we're all born uh, into and are all part of naturally cannot be part of God cannot be part of God it has a constitution which is anti-God basically or it, it can accommodate an awful lot of religion as a sop to its conscience but it, it is basically anti-God because it has a constitution which cannot contain God and until a miracle happens and a new constitution is formed and created by the Holy Spirit, uh, there's no place for God. And so the cherubim guard the door, always to God. And they stand over against God's great purpose, to have a dwelling place, a home uh, in man. Uh, they, they stand against this human race, attaining to it, coming to it, getting anywhere near to it, until there is a new kind of humanity uh, that can contain God. Then we suddenly find the cherubim, far from keeping back humanity, are, are welcoming humanity in and joining with them in worshipping the Lord. Um, they've found the one who was the way through and whom they indeed symbolised. For the cherubim are completely summed up in the Lord Jesus as man. Completely. In the person of the Lord Jesus, every characteristic that is symbolized and represented in the cherubim is wonderfully fulfilled and exemplified. And when the Lord Jesus comes, when he's laid down his life, and when, because he's laid down his life, he is able to produce a new humanity, a new kind of man like himself, then the cherubim step back 
and they usher in a new kind of man and woman. And I believe, if I am right, that we not only underline that, but that we also said that they represent really all that God ever meant humanity to be an essential character and function, not just character, but character and function. I think we shall see that this evening. And furthermore, we, I believe, discovered that this kind of humanity is intimately linked with the rest of creation. Uh, you remember, I asked a question last week, do we not sometimes... Uh, and do we not sometimes wrongly make a division between man and the rest of creation? And in God's mind, will we not find in the end that when he has the right kind of man, that right kind of man will be in the most amazing way linked with the whole creation? You know, it is a most interesting fact that the cherubim represent the head of all creatures. The lion, head of the beast, the ox, the head of tame creatures, the eagle, the king of the birds, and man, the head of the whole creation. That is the oldest traditional way of uh, um, uh, interpreting uh, this fourfold aspect of the cherubim. I believe that the cherubim represent redeemed humanity, but they represent not just humanity, but humanity in its right place. And therefore, a whole creation in harmony. A whole creation linked to that kind of man in the most glorious uh, progress. Uh, a thing that we cannot imagine uh, at this present time. But we do get, you know, a little glimpses of it when some of the prophets tell us that one day the lion is going to lie down with the lamb. Uh, and uh, children will play with asps and adders uh, as they would today with a kitten. Uh, the, you get a glimpse after glimpse of this, um, this future that lies ahead when the whole creation is restored uh, back to its original order. And I believe it is somewhat hinted at uh, in the in the symbolism of the cherubim. Um, certainly we do know that the whole natural creation is waiting and it's groaning and in pain and travail until a certain kind of man is revealed. When that certain kind of man is revealed, evidently, we, we, so we, uh, we infer from what Paul said, the groaning and the travail of the natural creation will be over. And we do not know what will happen. But it all is focused upon a certain kind of man coming forward. And not just one man, but a race. You know, it's an interesting thing that when God first created Adam, he said, multiply, be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. God didn't just want Adam and Eve. He wanted a race. When the Lord Jesus was, was brought into this world through Mary, you know, the Lord Jesus, uh, the, the God the Father, didn't just want the Lord Jesus. I have to be very careful what I say for fear of being misunderstood. But, the, but God the Father didn't just want the Lord Jesus, though he's perfectly satisfied with him. All he wants to do is to obtain a new humanity, a new race, 
through the Lord Jesus. And where the first Adam failed, the last Adam succeeded. You see? And uh, there, I think there's something very, very wonderful uh, about that. When that race, when that kind of humanity comes into its right place in the purpose and, and uh, timetable of God, then we shall discover that everything is going to suddenly go right. And all that's so disharmonious about the natural creation, all the queries we've got, and the uh, headaches, indeed, that we have, uh, uh, the problems that the natural creation presents to us, will all somehow be unraveled and solved. The most wonderful thing. Sometimes when I look at uh, ourselves and see all the complexes that, that exist, uh, and all the difficulties that exist, even though we are the Lords, and sometimes these things only come to the surface when we are the Lords, uh, I sometimes think, well, now, how is the Lord going to unravel all these things? We know he is. One day when we're in glory, all these complexes and all these difficulties that belong to our old men and women, or belong to an old creation and nature, are all going to go. And I suggest that if we have such difficulties within us now, and, it is, and the Holy Spirit is, is capable of overcoming them, I'm sure that when man is in his right place, all the difficulties, however constitutional, in the natural creation, will be similarly overcome. It seems to me that God has started where it began. Where the fall began with man, God intends to start. And when he can get man back into its place, then we shall discover, probably, I'm sure I'm right in this, that the whole natural creation will be similarly uh, unraveled and uh, brought back into its right harmony uh, and constitutional order. I sometimes wonder whether just as we have received a different constitution as a result of the fall, whether in actual fact the natural creation also has a different constitution. I think that it must have in many aspects. Now, it was all this that Ezekiel saw, and his ministry was bounded by this. Um, I won't say that he saw as clearly as we see uh, with the New Testament uh, before us, but I believe um, that Ezekiel saw far more than we, than we uh, would warrant him with. Um, he, I believe, his, he saw that the presence and the purpose of God were linked with the cherubim. This was the greatest single factor in his life. When he saw that vision, by the river Kibar, somehow it was as if into Ezekiel's hand a key was placed. And although Ezekiel, in recording it, has given a headache to many Christians ever uh, since then, to him it was the answer to a tremendous amount that he had undoubtedly wrestled with. Uh, in his mind, because when he saw that vision, he well, undoubtedly had the interpretation of it. Uh, he saw exactly what it all meant, and I believe that implicitly, because he has been so careful to record every detail. Now, a man doesn't record details, really, when he doesn't understand them, is not impressed. He only records the tiniest details when either it so lives with meaning to him that if it was out, he would say to, oh dear, you've missed the point. 
Don't you see that the wheels have eyes all round and down the spokes as well? It might, if you were to talk with Ezekiel, he would say that means a tremendous amount to me. Um, I've got to be very careful how I put that down uh, 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 onto paper because it means so much. You see, the very fact that the, the symbol, uh, symbolism of Ezekiel is so complex and so difficult argues for the, for the simple fact that he saw in every single thing something that was absolutely vital and he felt he couldn't put it uh, aside. Well, I, th I believe that Ezekiel saw, when he saw that vision, he saw that God's dwelling place, God's throne, God's presence, were all bound up with the cherubim. And he summed it all up by calling it the glory of the Lord. Now, you know, this is most important. I believe I may just touched on this last week that Ezekiel does not mean by the glory of the Lord some glorious uh, brightness up there in the heavens. And that's what most of us think. We think of it as some splendid, majestic sort of brightness uh, up in the heavens. Ezekiel did not uh, see that. What he saw was this. When he, when he speaks of the glory of the Lord, he always speaks of the presence of God, the dwelling place of God, the throne of God and the purpose of God being absolutely, intimately involved with, it, with a kind of man. Now, I want to point out another thing this evening to you. Do you know this is borne out absolutely in Scripture? I am interested to find that glory hardly ever appears, if ever it appears, and you have free to, to follow this out and see whether I, what I say is correct. Glory hardly ever appears, if it ever appears, apart from man. The first time glory is mentioned in Scripture, it is at the end of Exodus, and that is the setting up of the tabernacle. And as soon as the, the tabernacle is set up, God comes in. He doesn't come in with Abel, he doesn't come in with Noah, he doesn't even come when eight people are saved from a destroyed world. He doesn't come in even with Abraham, though it says the God of glory appeared to him. He didn't dwell. But where the first time you find the glory actually touching the earth and actually um, inhabiting a spot on the earth is when the tabernacle is set up. And again and again you will discover in Scripture that glory is associated with either the tabernacle or the temple as far as a dwelling place goes. Every time glory comes to rest, it is to do uh, with God's people here on earth. So I, I think that what uh, Ezekiel saw um, is very important for him, the whole question of recovery, the whole question of rebuilding, the whole question of re restoration, was related to the inward spiritual character represented by the cherubim. This is one of the great features of his ministry. Uh, he wasn't bothered about time and places and localities and the practical difficulties. He was bothered with the kind of men who alone could become the container of God's glory. And as he saw it, therefore the whole question of God's house God's purpose, God's throne, God's authority, 
the testimony of God on the earth, was bound up with a kind of man. If you didn't have that kind of man, you could have everything else, but you wouldn't have God. You wouldn't have the glory of God. And in his mind, it was as simple as this. If you've got that kind of man, God will be there. His was a tremendous emphasis upon the spiritual character that is absolutely necessary uh, to the glory uh, of God. Um, I might say that he sees the temple, he sees the city, he sees the land, he sees its recovery, he sees its te the, the very glory of God itself. He sees everything in the light of the kind of man to which alone God can commit himself. Now I believe that's very, very important for us to understand. Um, I, I want to suggest something here. I believe that it is most clearly displayed in the title used of Ezekiel by the Lord, never used elsewhere in Scripture except once or twice, and yet used of Ezekiel over 100 times, the title Son of Man. Never used by Ezekiel of himself, always used of Ezekiel by the Lord, Son of Man. There are only two prophets that are called son of man. One was Ezekiel, the other was Daniel. Now, isn't this interesting? There are a lot of other very interesting facts here, you know. Uh, it's interesting uh, that these two men are both men living off God's ground. And they have this title. They also both have the name Ezekiel Daniel. As soon as you find others in the land, they are Isaiah. Jeremiah, it's very interesting, but then we must leave all those little uh, points, those interesting points. My point about this title that God uses of Ezekiel is this. It seems to me that it signifies the kind of character, the kind of spiritual nature that God must have. And it is mo most clearly seen in this, that it is the most commonly used title of the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. Uh, of Ezekiel, it's always used without the definite article, the, and of Daniel the same, just Son of Man. The Lord Jesus always spoke of himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. A kind of man. He didn't mean that he was the same uh, fiber and being as, as a fallen creation. He meant that he was truly human, but a different kind of man. I'm afraid that the Lord Jesus said that we are naturally of our father, the devil. We are not truly human until we're, we're born of God. You know. uh, that's something you can go away and think about. We are not truly human until we're born of God. That's a big point. Well, I think that you can, you can see something in that question of, of Ezekiel being called the son of man. He sees everything in the light of the kind of man that God alone will commit himself to. He says, it's no good, you can have everything else. But unless you've got that kind of man, God's not interested. God vetoes it. <coughs> we shall see later on, in another week or two, that um, uh, he doesn't mean that God is just with this man anywhere. He sees it all as, as the temple in the finish, um, as within certain confined, uh, uh, confined area in a sense. But it is the, it's the inward character 
of the people. Now, all Ezekiel's ministry is taken up with this kind of thing, spirituality. Spirituality, spiritual character. It looms large in his mind because he undoubtedly saw it represented in the cherubim. There is a sense in which Ezekiel refused to be tied to local and personal details or to temporal practicalities. Um, his was a ministry of the eternal, a ministry of the spiritual, a ministry of, abide, of the abiding principles. Do get this. It's most important. You know, Ezekiel almost refuses to touch local things. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. It comes out in all kinds of, way, uh, of ways. How Ezekiel just will not touch um, uh, lots of things that are just local and personal and temporal practicalities. But he gets to the principle and in giving them the principle he has in actual fact given them the most important element of all. This can be seen in a variety of ways in Ezekiel's ministry. And it is part of this kind of ministry. The ministry of definition uh, is often in this realm. We must not, however, think that uh, in saying that Ezekiel was an unpractical or an impractical man. Um, I want to point out that as far, now listen very carefully, as far as his ministry went, he was intensely practical. Uh, it is interesting that all through, he, more than any other prophet, has to act out his sight act out his prophecies. They actually have to be acted out by him, which is a very interesting thing. He is, he is uh, uh, beyond all the other prophets, in this business of acting prophecies. And then, you know, there came a time, at, uh, just another incident, when, when uh, his wife died by the hand of the Lord, and she died at the exact point at which the armies of Nebuchadnezzar went into, uh, began the siege of Jerusalem. And she died as a sign. And the Lord said to, to Ezekiel, you are not to mourn, you are not to look grief-stricken, you are to wash your face, you are to look absolutely normal, and you are to make this the basis of your ministry to the people at this time. Now I suggest that that is far from being uh, impractical. That, I believe, is a ministry that is inwrought. Uh, his, his life and his being were his ministry and his ministry were bound up with, with it. Do you understand? Uh, the two did tally. Uh, we might say to Ezekiel, well, Ezekiel, we can't quite understand why you didn't get down to things a little bit more uh, and get on with the job, the practical job, because he never touched a brick. And as far as we know, he never touched a person who went back either. Uh, he certainly didn't go back with them. Uh, it all seems very strange and contradictory. But we can say this, that his ministry tallied with his own personal experience uh, in uh, every way. Then again, I want to say that having said all this about uh, him not um, touching temporal things and local things and personal details, it's amazingly evidenced in the way in which Ezekiel prophetically acts things out and not only acts prophecies, but speaks a message, you know, actually preaches a message, when it can't have any possible effect whatsoever upon the situation. Do you know 
that he spent four and a half years speaking about Jerusalem when it couldn't have possibly had any effect upon Jerusalem because he was at least a thousand miles away from them. And in those days, it would have taken months and months and months for news of his, of his messages to have got through. And when he was warning the people of what was going to happen, Nebuchadnezzar was going to come in, uh, he knew very well before the news had got to them of his warnings that the place would have been taken. You see, this is the whole point. It seems so impractical. Here is a man absolutely giving himself, absolutely pouring himself out amongst people who for the most part are hostile about situations thousands of miles away and he can't possibly touch them. We would have said to him, well, look here, Ezekiel, forget the people in Jerusalem. You're always talking about the people in Jerusalem. You're always talking about conditions in Jerusalem. Why don't you be a bit more practical? I've no doubt some of the uh, people, of, dear people of God were quite upset with Ezekiel. Uh, and so on. He's always talking about Jerusalem, always talking about the conditions of Jerusalem. We're thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. He can't do anything for Jerusalem. He can't affect the situation. But you see, uh, in actual fact, you miss the whole point of Ezekiel's ministry. He's not trying to affect the situation practically. He is pointing out the causes and the sources, the reasons for the judgment of God. And in doing so, he's getting to the root of the matter. And, and in getting to the root of the matter and defining it, he's not just doing it for his generation. Indeed, for that, for that it didn't affect much, that generation. But he did it for succeeding generations. And his ministry today is as valuable now, as ever it was. You see, he got to the root of things and defined things. That's the point. So, of course, he could talk about Jerusalem and, and what he saw in Jerusalem. He said he saw women weeping over Tammuz, some idol and awful immorality connected with it. He saw men in the inner chambers of the Lord's house with all these terrible, idolatrous and wicked abominable paintings all around the room worshipping. And he saw those 25 men with their backs to the house of God worshipping the sun. Well, you see, uh, he saw all this in a vision, but he was pointing out uh, points which were much more than the acts in themselves, much more than the incidents, uh, which in the end, if studied by the serious child of God, will lead him to an understanding of the devices of Satan and to the causes of backsliding and to the reasons for the judgment of God upon any of us. Well, I believe all that's very important. So, to conclude about the key uh, to Ezekiel, uh, what is it? I want to suggest, in summing it all up, that the key to uh, Ezekiel is a ministry of definition. And the key to his ministry is the glory of God. That is the key to Ezekiel's ministry, the glory of God. He sees God's glory to be intimately bound up with God's dwelling in a redeemed new humanity. That's his point. Well, there we are. That's the key. I hope that will help you a little. It's rather a lot, isn't it? We've covered a lot of ground in getting to the key uh, with Ezekiel. It's a very complex uh, and exhaustive book. 
Now, what about the outline? I've put a very simple outline on the board. Some would say that there is only a threefold division in Ezekiel. Others would say there is a fourfold division uh, in Ezekiel. Um, certainly, Ezekiel falls historically into three main groups and possibly four. From chapter 1 to chapter 24, you have a whole series of prophecies that were given before the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, then you have from Ezekiel 25 to Ezekiel 32 uh, some more prophecies that were given during the siege of Jerusalem. And from Ezekiel 33 to Ezekiel 48, you have all the prophecies that were given after the siege. Now, some people would take the very last portion of this book from chapter 40 to 48, which is undated, and would say that is the fourth great um, portion of this book, deliberately undated, because it is wholly to do with the eternal. Wholly to do with the eternal. Of course, I, when we come to it, uh, we will have to look at that. I see there are many people who believe, of course, on the basis of those last chapters, that uh, the Jews are going to rebuild the temple and they're going to reinstitute sacrifices uh, in the millennium, so-called, and all the rest of it. But I think that we shall see that it is so remarkably linked with the city at the end of Revelation that we have to dismiss that theory. Spiritually, however, even if historically it falls into three main groups or possibly four, spiritually it seems to me that there is a five-fold division. And I have put that on the board. The first is just the first three chapters. It is the God's glory seen and understood. Uh, it comprises Ezekiel's vision, his call, and his commission. And then, from chapter 4 to 24, the departing glory and the reasons for its departure. A, 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 really, a, um, a very, very wonderful uh, part of Ezekiel, actually. Uh, the way the glory of God slowly but surely departs, step by step, right out. And then the judgment uh, of the nations, the judgment of God upon the nations. Uh, there's a principle bound up there because Ezekiel is the first one to say that the judgment of God must begin at the house of God. When God has judged his house, his temple, his own, then he moves out to the nations. And that's taken up in Peter, where Peter says, for judgment must begin at the house of God concerning the end. So you see, the judgment of the nations follows on the judgment and departure of God's glory uh, from his own. Then from chapter 33 to 39, we have the restoration and the recovery of the people. And in, from chapter 40 to 48, we have the glory of God returning forever. Uh, I think we ought to note that all focuses on the glory of God uh, in this book. Uh, as I've said, here's another way of looking at it. In the first three chapters, you have God's glory defined. God's glory defined. Uh, then, from chapter 4 to chapter 32, you have God's glory departing. And you have in those chapters the causes for the departure of God's glory. 
And not only have you got the uh, uh, causes for it, but it ties it right down to the very principles upon which God cannot be glorified, to which God cannot be committed. It's not as if God is sulking and sort of because he's in a sulk like so many of us, uh, moves out because he can't get his own way or because he can't get through or something else, he just moves out. God isn't like that. God here, you see, is, is he, he cannot commit himself to a certain kind of nature or character. And so he's got to get out. He's got to get out. And it's a very wonderful picture how God's glory refuses to depart too far. I think that's very wonderful, very, very, very um, illustrative of God's nature and love, that he only goes out onto the East Mount and waits there. He re In other words, he goes as far away as he's got to, the minimum, that's all, and waits. And then you have in those last, from the last chapters, 33 to 48, you've got God's glory returning forever. And in that, uh, there you've got all recovered, but not only all recovered, but it ends with that wonderful little word, Jehovah Shammah. It shall be called Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. That's the end of Ezekiel. God's glory defined, God's glory departing, God's glory returning forever. And the last, the last uh, title given to God's people is, the Lord is well, that rings something, doesn't it? It echoes somehow over to Revelation, to the book of Revelation, those last chapters. Now, let's consider in the last moments this evening something of the, of the nature of the first three chapters. We will not get beyond those first three chapters. The first three chapters of Ezekiel, if you'll turn to them. Let's consider the outline a little more fully. We will spend this evening on the first, and I think next week we shall probably cover the next three, because we shall spend a little more time on this first. And uh, last evening we spend on Ezekiel, we will uh, spend on the last eight chapters, which are so important. Now what have we got in, this, um, in these first three chapters? We have the glory of God seen, and understood. It is the record of Ezekiel's uh, vision, his call, and his commission. Now, let's see if we can look at this and understand a little. First, the first thing we find, and the first key to these three chapters, is verse 28 of chapter 1. It says, uh, this is the center phrase of it, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now, that is how um, Ezekiel sums up what he saw, this complex vision that he saw. He says, this is the likeness or the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Um, he doesn't say to us, this is it. He can't describe what he saw, that's the point. So he says, this is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He saw a symbol of the glory of the Lord, but he couldn't even manage somehow to put into human language the symbol that he saw. And so he says, so I saw the appearance of the symbol. That's all I can want. This is what it was like. I've given it to you as, as clearly as I can. The vision of the glory of the Lord. Now, what is this glory of the Lord? Well, let's look first. 
Uh, we shall find it is um, uh, the glory of the Lord uh, in Ezekiel's vision was a cloud. First, it came in a strong cloud, rather like a hurricane, blowing out of the north. And uh, as it moved swiftly, he saw two or three things about it. First, he saw that it was a storm cloud. Secondly, he saw that it was enveloped with fire. That is, uh, there was a fire within it, a red amber glow inside. It seemed to be absolutely um, on fire. And thirdly, he saw lightning, vividness or brightness, as he calls it, flashing out uh, from this. This is the glory of the Lord. That's what he saw, the first thing he saw. Now, out of it, now mark it very carefully because it says this, out of this cloud, out of this appearance of the, of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, came what he describes as the form of four figures. Out of the midst of it, not underneath it, not above it, not around it, but out of it. Suddenly, as he watched it, he saw these four living ones appear, these figures appear uh, out of it. Um, they had a fourfold aspect. They had four wings. They were four sides to uh, a square. Uh, they, were, um, they had four faces to each one of them. Uh, in other words, there was something... Uh, that was completely a general, shall we say, um, uh, about them. They covered the whole uh, of the universe, in that sense. Now, what he saw was this. He saw that there was a basic human form to these. If you look at verse 5, verse 5 it says this, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living ones, and this was their appearance. They had the form of men. Now that's very important. The actual figures were basically human. Now that's very important for us to understand. They were basically human. They were not basically, as some people tried to point out, oxen. As some people tried to point out that they were. They weren't. It says explicitly here that they had a human form, basically. That's very important. And he noticed this. From this he learnt that God was enthroned or God was inhabiting uh, these figures. Uh, this is what he calls glory. In Ezekiel's mind, the glory of the Lord is the Lord in enthroned in or inhabiting these four figures. That's very important for us to understand if we're going to get to a, an understanding completely of the symbolism of what he saw. For instance, look at verse 13. Now I'm going to read it to you in Moffat because it's very interesting. He says, also in the middle of the creatures or the figures, there was something with a capital S moving to and fro like glowing coals, like torches, a fire that gleamed and flashed out lightning. 
Uh, the American uh, Revised Standard puts more or less the same. In the midst of the living creatures, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. This is the presence. That's all. The presence of God in, in the living figures. Now, mark it. This presence was in the four living ones. Ezekiel saw, as it were, now that they were the containers of something. Although the glory was all around them, somehow there was a presence inside of them, as if glory had become personified in something, as he put it, that was moving all the time in the midst of them. Then I want you to compare this with Ezekiel 10 and 2. And I think you will discover that uh, we have here the altar. Verse 2 of chapter 10. Go in between the whirling wheels, even under the cherubim, fill both thy head with coals of fire from between the cherubim. It is this fire, this something in the midst, is linked with the altar. Now mark that. It's linked with the altar. Later on, uh, the man with the ink horn, dressed in linen with the ink horn and writing case, is told to go in between the wheels and obtain coals, burning coals, from off the altar of God in the midst. So the presence of God is identified with the altar in the midst of the four living ones. This is the fire that you can see. It's not just a fire. It's not just an abstract glory. It's centered in the actual altar. The altar itself is in the midst. Then again, I want you to notice, therefore from that, to Ezekiel, God's glory was bound up with a human vessel. He could see from these four figures, it was bound up with a a human vessel, and this human vessel was God's home. That's what Ezekiel said, God's home. When in the end he said, the Lord is there, he didn't mean temporarily, in a transient way. When in the end, the last word of Ezekiel is, the Lord is there, he meant the Lord's come home. The Lord's set up home. The Lord at last, finally, has found his rest. To Ezekiel, this human vessel is the rest of God. Now that's very important. It's the rest of God. The human vessel. And it is the throne of God. Not only the rest of God, because he saw above it, as we've seen in a moment, a throne. So the throne of God, the home of God, the rest of God, is all uh, bound up with this human vessel. These four living creatures. And I want you to point, to point out that the heart of God's home is an altar. The altar is the central point of his rest. And I don't believe that just simply means uh, uh, Christ dying for our sin. But I believe it's an eternal principle with God. That is exemplified in the Lord Jesus when though he was an equal with God, if he didn't count it a thing to be grasped at, but humbled himself. That was the cross eternally. 
a relationship. Uh, and whenever you get that, you've got rest, whether it is in a human being, or whether it's in a family, or whether it's in a company. Whenever you've got a few people who know something on the cross, you've got rest at the heart of everything. God's rest and their rest enter it. So you see here that what Ezekiel saw is nothing small but tremendous, really, in its nature and in its uh, implications. Now then, what are the characteristics of this vessel? Can we go through them swiftly? What are the characteristics of this human vessel, which is the rest of God and the home of God and the throne of God? What are their characteristics? Let's look. First, in verse 4, in verse 13, and comparing it with Ezekiel 10 and verse 2, we find, which we have, I think, looked at, we discover that one of the characteristics is a fire in the midst. A fire. And that fire is, as it were, um, uh, enveloping an altar. There's something in the heart of it. Well, if you don't think it's an altar, let go of the idea of the altar and just think of fire. The, the same thought is there. The altar in the temple would never have been anything without the fire. The fire is the, is the thing. The altar's there, all right. Even if you didn't see an altar, the fire's there. What does that fire do? It's a cost. Now, one of the great things about this human vessel is that it's costly. Everything in this human vessel comes out of fire. If you look at this human vessel, wherever you look, it's fire. Fire is dazzling you. Fire is somehow seeping through and enveloping everything in this. Even the wheels, it says. There's fire in the midst of them. Even the man on the throne. There's fire from his loins upwards and his loins downwards. You look at the living creatures. There's fire in their hooves. You look at them and you see fire round about them. You look at the throne and you see a rainbow vividly around, amber-coloured fire, or everywhere's fire. Look at the city of God at the end. Everything in the city of God has come through fire. Everything. The gold, the crystal, the precious stones, the pearls. Everything has been produced out of, out of the altar. I have often pointed out to you that when, when in Ezekiel we find that the, the river comes out of the altar, uh, in, in the book of Revelation it comes out of the throne. And we learn from that that the throne of God is the altar of God. That's all. The altar of God is the throne of God. And then nothing comes by any other means or way than by the altar. So one of the basic characteristics of this human vessel is the altar. Fire is in its very nature. It's been fired. It's come through fire. It lives in the midst of fire. You know, as Isaiah once said, who can dwell in everlasting burnings? He went on to say, the righteous of God, the redeemed of the Lord will dwell there. In the midst of everlasting burnings. It will burn up the sinner, but it will only purify and make beautiful the saved. That's all. <laughs> the cross is judgment to some, and salvation to others. It's an interesting thing that whenever there is judgment, it goes back to the altar. Scatter coals, says the Lord to the angel, over the city from the altar. Judgment on one, salvation to the other. Well, I leave it there. The altar is one of the great characteristics of, the, uh, of this vessel. Secondly, if we look at uh, 8 and 9, uh, no, sorry, 
not eight and nine. Uh, if we look at the four faces that we have uh, in uh, Ezekiel, the chapter ten, uh, chapter one, verse ten, you have four faces. You have looking out to the front a man, looking out to the right an ox, uh, to, to the right uh, a lion, to the left an ox, inwards or upwards an eagle. Now, it's very interesting that uh, Knox's version says uh, perhaps this might be the answer to a lot of people's troubles. Uh, many of us have not been able to understand quite how you could see ahead with all these different faces. But it would be very interesting if the Latin is right and that it was as you, the way you looked at it. If you looked at it straight on, it was a man. If you looked at it from the side, from the right, it was a lion. Looked at it from the left, it was an ox looked at from above or within, it was an eagle. You see, this human vessel has got these four basic characteristics symbolized by these, by these faces. Firstly, the man. What does the man speak of? He symbolizes affection, sympathy, and intelligence. Intelligent affection and sympathy. Or put it another way, sympathetic, affectionate intelligence. But it means the same, however you look at it, really. Maybe different emphases, but that's what the man represents. This human vessel, God doesn't want automatons, spiritual automatons, press-button machines, pious, sanctimonious, and you just do certain things and they do it. God wants living, affectionate, sympathetic, intelligently responsive creatures. Oh, that intelligent, your spiritually intelligent worship is to present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's the kind of person God wants. Not a beast that has to be with bit and bridle forced into the fire, but a man out of sympathy and love and intelligence, spiritual intelligence, can see that the way through is to put themselves into the fire. That's what God wants. That's this kind of vessel. And then if you look at it from the right, the right hand is always authority. It's always the throne. It's always government. It's always strength. We find a lion. And if we look at it from the right, it's a lion. And lion always speaks of kingliness, royalty, authority. This vessel's got authority. Not an authority which is just uh, doled out. Some people have got an idea that authority is this. Oh, I'll make you an elder. We'll make you an elder tomorrow. And then you've got an authority that sort of wafts around you wherever you go. Everyone knows you're an elder. So that's not authority with God. Authority comes out of experience, of an inwrought experience. This lion-like character, this lion-like character, is best exemplified in the Lord Jesus, who is the lion on one side and the lamb on the other. That's what God means by a lion. People who know when to be lambs and when to be lions. That's what God means by the lion-like aspect of this vessel. Royalty. Royalty. Not the royalty that, that is superior and condescending and barges its way and overlords everyone, but the royalty that is so inherent that people just have to acknowledge it and have to respect it. They can't help it. 
They might not like you. They might disagree with you. But there's something so royal about you, so noble about you, that can only be stamped out as Christ. Lion-like nature of Christ. The people just say, well, I don't agree with him, but I've got to stand. That's all. I just can't. Uh, I, something in me. On the other side, if you look at it from the left-hand side, which is the lowly side, what do we find in do you know what the ox is, poor creature? That plodding, patient, steadfast creature of labor. And do you know in scripture, never the lion was sacrificed, never the eagle, never a man, always an ox. The calf was the thing that was offered up, often as a burnt offering. See, this is the nature of service. Look at, look at this human vessel from the left, and what do you find? Something so lowly. Something so steadfast, something so patient, it just goes on and on and on. Thou shalt not muzzle the, the ox that treadeth out the corn. You know why? It's bound to a wooden axle, as it were, and just, it just goes round and round and round and round and round and round. That's its job. Hour after hour. Well, that's one aspect, I'm sorry to say, for many of us, uh, of this human vessel. <clears throat> that's what God means by service, and many of us are near to fainting on it. It just means going on and on, being tied to a centre with a few yards, that's all, and round you go, treading out the corn. <laughs> hour after hour, we used to see them in the east, day in, day out, those poor creatures walking round and round and round and round and round. Treading out the corn. Well, that's the ox. There is something about this human vessel which can only be described as sacrificial service. Patient, enduring, steadfast, just plodding on, tied to a spot, a prisoner. And the other, I might say, and this is wonderful, from within. I am so glad that if any of the world should look from without at this human vessel, they don't see the eagle. They see the man. But when God looks from within or from above, he sees only the divine. The eagle is the symbol of deity. It is the symbol of spirituality, something that soars into the heavens. And the whole idea of this, of this aspect of this human vessel is that it, uh, it is one with God in divine nature. It has a union with God. And that's the only way God will come to it, through that aspect. <coughs> you know, when you look at the Lord Jesus, he absolutely exemplifies this. Absolutely. The whole thing is summed up and exemplified in the Lord Jesus. Oh, just look at him. Just look at him as the man. Look at him as the king. Look at him as the servant, suffering unto death. Look at him as the eagle, the son of God, in touch with God all the way through. 
Well, there are a few other things I, I think <clears throat> just seek to cover them and leave it. There are four wings that you will find in chapter 1, verse 8, 9, and 11. Four wings, two pairs of wings, touching, or as it says in the American and the authorized version, revised version, joined. Joined. I like that word because that's what it really means. Although all the modern versions have put touching because they think that's probably what it means, not joined. But the thought was stronger than touching. These wings, two of them, were covering the body, and two of them were out overshadowing them. Now that's interesting. A market. Two veiling their body, and two overshadowing them, and joined. Wings. Now you know I've, I've, I've thought for two weeks about wings. I thought, what can wings mean? Why? I want you to point out to you that the wings are connected with the eagle. Wings. Do you know I found the most interesting thing? That there are different words, Hebrew words, used in the Old Testament for wings. And they've all got a different aspect of the wing. And the word used here is the word which means the covering nature of the wing. The Lord Jesus used it in a different language when he said uh, that uh, a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. Moses spoke of it when he spoke of the eagle bearing up its young on its wing. The whole idea is protection, covering, security. Now what does this mean? One of the characteristics of this human vessel is that they, they know the Lord in such a, reverent, such a reverential way. They know the fear of the Lord that they are covered. They let nothing get uncovered. No tempting of the Lord by foolish words. No uncovering of each other. They not only cover themselves, but they seek to cover each other. They are joined in this tremendous fellowship of covering love, cover of the multitude of sins. It is the fellowship that comes through mutual love and care for each other as the body of the Lord Jesus. I don't know whether that makes sense to you, but in Scripture, if you wish to test me out on this, look through what wings mean, and I think you will discover that the thought behind them is covering. Covering. Protection. Security. And it's not only personal, it is corporate. And then again, you will notice that under the wings, in verse 8, there are human arms and hands under the lower wings. And you know, again, I thought a lot about hands. What do hands really symbolize in Scripture? It's very interesting. The first time we ever have hands mentioned in Scripture, they're taking something. Lest he take of the tree of life. And all the way through Scripture, you find that hands are taking or receiving and giving. Receiving and giving. Even prayer was the lifting up of the hands. By the Jew, he stood always to pray to this very day and lifts his hands up like this. The cops still do it. Their hands out. The thought is to receive. It is interesting that later on, when Ezekiel sees this vision again in chapter 10, when the man is told to go into the wheels to get the coals from the altar, the cherub stretches out a hand and takes off the coals. 
And I believe that one of the great characteristics of this human vessel is that it receives everything to give everything. It's the principle inherent within it is that it has nothing within itself, but it receives all to give all. Life is that. As soon as you block one end, there's no giving. You stop giving, and in, it's before long, the inflow, something will go wrong with the inflow. You must give to receive. That's life. Giving, reproducing, scattering, fruitfulness. It's all this simple principle of receiving and giving. Receiving and giving. I think it was Brother Lee who said about the tree of life. You ate it. You ate it. You received it. Once you'd received it, you had something to give. So that's one of the, uh, another one of the characteristics of this vessel. And then I want you to notice in verse 7, it has calves' feet, and that always speaks of separation. You know the calf is one of the clean creatures in Leviticus. It speaks of separation. He had uh, a body like commands, but its feet were calves' feet. And we were... Uh, in scripture we're told that that which chews the cud and parts the hoof can be eaten because it is clean. This speaks of a walk. This vessel knows a sanctified walk in spirit. Something which is separate. Something which is holy for the Lord. Its, its hands are to take from the Lord and pass on to others. Its feet are holy for walking in. God's ways, separate, sanctified, walking, and standing. And then I want you to notice in verse 12, it is spirit-impelled and single-minded. The most amazing thing about this ch these cherubim is they can't turn around, and they, can't, they can only go straight forwards and straight back. That's the only way they can go. They're single-minded. They, there's no turning aside. They can only go straight. And furthermore, they can only go as the Holy Spirit uh, constraint. Uh, it says that where, whither the Spirit went, they go. The Holy Spirit is the great impulse, the great uh, impelling force within them. So there you've got the character of this human vessel. I don't know whether that makes any sense to you, but I think if you go away and rethink about it and pray about it, it may make more and more as you look at it. Here this composite symbol, and it speaks of the human vessel. Now just underneath it, we suddenly find wheels, and the wheels are huge. What do the wheels speak of? The wheels speak, in scripture, uh, here, of activity, because they're called whirling wheels. They never stop. They're whirling all the time. What is the idea in these wheels? I believe that if you look in scripture, you will find that a cycle or a wheel speaks of life. And here you have a symbol of service, not, not just character. You've taken a step now forward, service. And service is a question of eternal life, the life of God within. It is continuous ceaseless in its activity. Once you've got the life of God, you know, you've got the greatest uh, uh, force in the universe within. 
obey the law of the life of God within us. And there's nothing that's impossible. Nothing. That's the great secret of the Christian life, and few find it. Activity and service is all bound up with these wheels. You see, the cherubim could not go themselves. They couldn't walk by themselves. The wheels went, and the cherubim went. Do you understand? Where the cherubim went, I'm sorry, the wheels went. The two were bound together. You never found the wheels apart from the cherubim, or the cherubim apart from the wheels. The two were bound together. It speaks of life, and it speaks of life and activity uh, in God's service, God's work. The whole of the wheels are eyes, and it speaks of intelligence in the work of God. You see, the only way, the only way that God's work, can be, God, ministry, service can be fulfilled, you can function, is to see, you must see, you must not only see the Lord, but you must see situations for what they really are. These wheels are not just an eye here and an eye there. They've got eyes all round the rim, and the spokes are all eyes. A weird sight. A wheel within the wheel. Wherever they go, it doesn't matter how they move, up or down, backwards or forwards, they see everything in a flash. Everything. Nothing escapes their intelligence. Uh, they are sort of red. You know what the eye is, don't you? It's like a, a, a lens. It, it not only allows you to see out, but it immediately registers into the brain all the impressions of what you see. Now, you think of a thing covered with eyes, back front, every part. It, it is a, like a, a something that can register anything in a moment. Absolutely register anything. It's so sensitive. So you find that all activity, all service, all movement is bound to inward character in this vessel. All this question of movement, all this question of service, it's all a question of the cherubim. Where the cherubim go, it says, uh, if you look at it in verse 21, so the wheels went. It's bound up with the kind of character that this human vessel has. And I want you to note also that these wheels are also linked with the altar. The man went through the wheels to, to, in order to get those burning coals from off the altar. It's linked. I think there you have the most amazing picture of this vessel. If people think that they are saved to sit down one day uh, all round the Lord sort of thing and just have glorious conferences where they listen and listen and listen and do nothing, we've all got another tremendous thing coming. Because from what I can see from this symbol of redeemed humanity, which is going to be the dwelling place of God, there's going to be a tremendous amount of activity and service. These wheels speak of the ceaseless nature of God's life. Always exploring, always creating, always moving on, always branching out. I believe that God, when we, when, when once we're with, holy with him and not just in a fallen atmosphere, we shall discover the Lord to be someone so exciting, so exciting, on this question of his exploratory. Oh, I don't believe that this is the end, this universe. You wait. 
what we're going to see, those wheels are just a little uh, uh, symbol of it. They're going to go. And all kinds of things are going to come out of this activity. We're going to be in it. We're going to be in it. We're going to be the vessel. It's the life of God inside of us. We with him and he with us. It's a tremendous thing. This, this, this world, this universe, and all its wonders, is a little stepping off ground, a little, a little launching platform. Some of God's rockets. It's going to be tremendous things one day uh, when, when, when we are there with him. And this poor, fallen humanity, it's a pale reflection of what God would have so you see, there's not only wheels, but when you look up, he sees right above a vault. He sees above a vault, blue, and there a throne. And on the throne, the likeness of a man. That's the most wonderful thing of all. The throne is in the midst of these creatures, in the midst above them, out of them, the throne. And on the throne, a man. You know who he is. No need to tell you. That's not God. Not just God. That's God the Son. The Lord Jesus on the throne. Head of a body. The church. There's a lot we could say about that. Christ and throne. The rainbow around him which speaks of grace. You know where that goes back to. You know, that covenant of grace which God made with a new creation. Never flooded again. Ever. All there. Well, that speaks of dominion and authority. With the Lord Jesus, the cherubim are with the man on the throne. They are, as it were, part of him. The rabbis said that the cherubim were the chariot of God's throne. And that is it. God's throne, according to the rabbis, was a chariot. It wasn't one of these things that you just sit down and can't move. It was a, a, a throne on wheels. Cherubim with the throne and the wheels of the life of God. Well, now I'm sorry it's all so complex. I'm sorry it's such a difficult evening for you all to listen. I hope you gain something uh, from all that. That is Ezekiel's ministry. And from that, after he's seen that, the angel says to Ezekiel, Here are Ezekiel, here is a scroll, eat it. Ezekiel looks in the scrolls, all mournings and lamentations and woes, he says. But he eats it. And it's very sweet to him. And then afterwards, after a few more words of commission, the Lord said to him, Ezekiel, you are a watchman. You have seen something. Now, Ezekiel. He says in chapter 3, and you can read it when you get back home, and I'd like you to read that more than any other part. The Lord says to Ezekiel, every living person is your responsibility. You've seen something. If you don't warn them, and they die because you don't warn them, I will require their blood at your hand, Ezekiel. Even if a righteous man, he says, sins, and I tell you to warn him, and you don't warn him, he will die in his sins, because he has sinned. But his blood, It is the solemn nature of this that when we've seen something, it doesn't matter if we go back into the world, woe betide us, or wherever we go, once we've seen something, 
We are answerable to God for humanity. We are watchmen. We've seen something and we are therefore constituted watchmen. May the Lord help us then to get to the root of this symbol in our own hearts. You've heard a lot this evening. Help us to get to the root of it. I'm sorry we've been long. But help us to get to the root of it to understand it and not only to understand it but to give ourselves wholly to the Lord for its working.